Hi there, I'm Brian Davis. And I'm Jay Kanayan. Uh, welcome to The Heart of the Matter, um, a series in which we share conversations with inspiring and interesting people and dive into their core issues or motivations behind their work, their lives, and their worldview. Our guest today is Ben Farley, a trial attorney at the U.S. Department of Defense, where he works on providing legal defense for Guantanamo Bay detainees, uh, and I'm sure many other uh, work that we'll talk about. Um, welcome, Ben. Oh, thank you so much. I'm so pleased to be here. Yeah. Virtually. Virtually, yes. Adaptions for, uh, you know, interviews in the time of COVID, we're, we're all making adaptions. And I, I think this has been a heyday for the video chat, video chat industry. So, right. <laughs> Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah, it's still surprising that Zoom is up and running. You know, must be under so much load right now. Oh, yeah, yeah, it's absolutely. Um, but as we begin, I, I just have to say that um, uh, Brian, you're right. I am an employee of the U.S. Department of Defense, uh, and as a consequence, uh, everything I or the things that I say tonight do not necessarily reflect the views of the Department of Defense, the U.S. government, or agency or instrumentality thereof. Uh, these are my views and my views alone. Cool. Great. And if we ever broach a subject that you feel you can't uh, speak about, please let us know and we can move on. on that. I sure will. All right. Cool. Excellent. Yeah. Ahead, so how, lo how long have you worked for the Department of Defense? So I, uh, I joined the Department of Defense in August of 2017 um, and was uh, immediately assigned to the Military Commission's Defense Organization, um, which is the uh, sort of like the public defender office for uh, men who are on trial at the military commissions at Guantanamo. Uh, and I am assigned to a team of attorneys and paralegals and analysts and linguists who uh, provide defense, capital defense for Amar Abulucci, who is one of the five men on trial for 9-11. Um, and you might know him as Khalid Sheikh Mohammed's nephew. Wow. Yes, this is, uh, this is going to be really interesting to dive into. But, um, what do you think, Brian? Should we uh, turn the clock back a bit and um, find out a bit, Brian? Like, uh, yeah, I'm curious. Yeah. Why, first of all, why do you think you were assigned to that in particular? What about your background kind of uh, pointed you in that direction? Um, well, uh, so, I, I, so I was recruited to join this team in particular. Um, and the sort of path of my recruitment um, goes back to my job at the State Department uh, starting in June of 2013, where I was a, an advisor and a senior advisor to the Special Envoy for Guantanamo Closure at the State Department. Um, and I did that job for um, about three and a half years. Uh, in the course of that job, I, you know, so our job was to uh, negotiate detainee transfer. So the population of detainees who had been approved for transfer subject to appropriate security measures, uh, we were supposed to go and uh, reach out to foreign governments, sometimes their, their home countries, the detainees' home countries, sometimes third countries, uh, and negotiate to either repatriate or resettle um, these detainees. Uh, the, I, I'm happy to talk more about the sort of mechanics of that job and, and the different responsibilities, but in the, in the course of that, we would very often work with attorneys who represented Guantanamo detainees in habeas proceedings in federal court. Um, because those attorneys had relationships with their clients and they were able to communicate with their clients in a way that we weren't. And they also had information about their clients that we didn't necessarily have. So um, our goal was always to uh, engage in a consensual transfer, uh, a transfer to a country where the detainee you know, agreed to go voluntarily. And we were successful at that. The, the 
uh, it, during my tenure, we never um, uh, forcibly uh, repatriated or resettled anyone. Um, is, but one of the attorneys with whom uh, I worked uh, on a number of uh, transfers is a woman by the name of Alka Pirana, uh, who is who in, I think, the fall of 2015 left her job uh, providing habeas representation to the so-called low-value detainees and became a trial attorney at the, uh, in my office, uh, representing the same uh, client that I now represent. Um, and then in February of 2017, you know, it, my whole career is like this. It's just been a sort of a string of um, uh, coincidences, uh, dumb luck and happenstance. She and I and her husband and daughter and my now wife were having brunch on like a Sunday in February in 2017 after the inauguration. And um, I was still in the Guantanamo closure office and with the change in administrations, it seemed clear that I wasn't gonna have a lot to do in that office. Um, you know, President Trump as a candidate had uh, promised not to close the facility and to quote, load it up with bad dudes. Um, so I'm sort of thinking out loud and, and talking with her about um, my need to find something else to do. And, and she said, oh, you should come work for us. And I said, you know, I don't, you know, particularly want to do that. I had at the time no desire to be a defense attorney. I had spent six months as a federal prosecutor, as a Salsa, uh, and, and being a defense attorney for a guy uh, on trial for 9-11 wasn't something I, I was interested in doing. Um, and she said, you know, I understand, but you should come and meet my boss. He's really smart and we're doing some interesting work and I think you'd be really interested in it. And I said, you know, I'm always happy to meet people, uh, I think like you guys. And um, uh, she set up a lunch for us and I went and I sat down and it turned out that it wasn't lunch, but it was a job interview. And for almost two hours, uh, my now boss, a guy named Jay Cannell, uh, subjected me to a murder board on law, war and con law issues that I had not prepared for. Um, and I, uh, I got up from that lunch having not eaten anything or barely eaten. And I, I knew two things. Um, one, I wanted to go work for him and do this job. And two, he was never going to hire me because I just fell flat on my face in an interview I had not prepared for. Um, but, uh, you know, a couple of weeks later, he invited me back for another conversation and, um, they ultimately extended me an offer and, you know, the, sort of gears of bureaucracy ground away for about six months before I went over in August of 17. Wow, yeah, super exciting. And it's true that, uh, you know, just having a look at your career, it does seem like you've had some interesting jumps and, um, you know, as you say, happenstance along the way. Um, can I find out like um, where, so I saw that you did a bachelor's in physics, right? Yeah. With your undergrad. So how did you go from physics into politics? <laughs> um, well, um, so I, uh, I went to college and I didn't know what I wanted to do. Um, I, uh, I was good at math and science and, you know, growing up in high school and, um, and I was interested in it and I was, you know, interested in politics and history and the humanities as well. And my parents sort of convinced me that if I didn't know what I wanted to do ultimately, that I should go get a natural science degree because if nothing else, a natural science degree would uh, convince people that I could think critically and that's always a valuable and marketable skill. Mm -hmm. um, this was, you know, one of a uh, series of pieces of 
very impractical advice that my parents gave me. Um, uh, because it turns out that a bachelor's degree in physics gets you uh, very little uh, in terms of uh, a career opportunities other than uh, the, the chance to go get a PhD in physics. Exactly. Um, but I, you know, I got about, I don't know, maybe halfway, two thirds of the way through my undergraduate career. And I realized that um, with the help of a friend in the physics department who upbraided me for reading The Economist and Foreign Affairs instead of, um, you know, physical review letters, mm-hmm. uh, that I, uh, I probably wasn't interested in being a physicist or an astronomer, and I should maybe look into doing the things that, you know, that I was spending my time learning about on my own anyway. Um, and that, um, that encouraged me to pick up a... Uh, a major, maybe a minor, I don't know, a bunch of poli-sci classes, and then uh, pursue a graduate degree in international affairs um, at the Elliott School, uh, GW, which was entirely an excuse to move to Washington, D.C., um, because I was going to go be Josh Lyman. Um, Where were you before D.C.? Uh, I was in college at um, uh, UMass Amherst, so Western Massachusetts. Gotcha. Yeah, right. Could you just talk, uh, touch upon um, what's the character you said that's that moved from DC? Oh, sorry. Yeah, I, uh, I I wanted to come to I I wanted to move to DC because I wanted to be Josh Lyman, the uh, character from The West Wing. Um, uh, that was I mean that was I, I say that a bit glibly, but there's some truth to that as well. Yeah, especially seeing where you've ended up now, right in the heart of the government. Oh yeah. So I'm curious when um, <clears throat> when your I guess your now boss um, or I guess your colleague when when she's pitching you on this job and she's saying I think you'd find it interesting. What is the underlying thing that you think she? Why is it interesting? What what about your work? Because your work, you know, it's I'm sure it's controversial work. I'm sure it's difficult work. I'm sure it. Maybe, and I, I, I'm supposing it puts you in a position of ethical quandary, and I'm, I'm very curious to talk to you a little bit more about that. Um, but what about the work, um, like, piqued your interest um, after that discussion? Sure. Um, so, yeah, I, I, I'd, I'd happily talk about the, the ethical questions because, strangely enough, I think that the ethical questions are, are not difficult um, about this work. Um, But I think what she was alluding to is that um, the military commissions is a law of war tribunal, uh, fundamentally, and my, my legal sort of the my, sorry, my interest, my legal, like, academic interest, my, uh, the focus of a lot of my study, things that I published on, um, had sounded in the law of war. Um, they'd been dealing with certain law of war issues. Uh, I think that she also recognized that I had a, you know, it wasn't, there was dumb luck and happenstance in me going to work for the special envoy for Guantanamo closure, but that was a, an extremely difficult job. And it's not a job that you do for any length of time, uh, unless you have some belief in the, in that policy. And, and, um, and I think that underlying that really is, um, and I don't know if she knew this at the time or not, um, but she certainly does now. And, and I'm more than happy to talk about it is, 
is my own personal view that uh, the United States made some tremendous uh, mistakes in the wake of 9-11 under the guise of um, uh, counterterrorism and in particular fighting al-Qaeda. Many of these missteps have had um, extremely negative ramifications in a wide variety of uh, uh, a wide variety of ways across um, U.S. policy, um, and one of those things in particular was the decision to torture people, um, my client included, in the rendition detention interrogation program uh, run by the Central Intelligence Agency and really the whole of the U.S. government. Uh, starting, uh, you know, sometime in the spring of 2002. Um, you know, I mean, depending on how you measure, it's either the spring 2002 or it's August 2002. But at any rate, from, from that point uh, through at least September of 2006, when my client was transferred uh, to Guantanamo, um, you know, torture is illegal. There's no question about it. The, the legal basis for the RDI program is, you know, laughable. Um, uh, I mean, just, it was just terrible. I mean, terrible analysis. Um, and it, um, you know, beyond being illegal, it's just horribly immoral. And beyond both of those things, the, the, our decision to torture people has contributed directly. And, and you know, it might be the overriding cause for the the fact that, you know, here it is, April of 2020, and I'm still dealing with pretrial proceedings in the 9-11 trial uh, for guys who have been in custody since, um, you know, between late 2002 and, and early 2003, right? Like, you know, that's insane. We've, we've had these guys for, you know, 17 and a half to 17 years, and we haven't actually gotten to trial yet. And oh, by the way, this is the you know, second attempt to put them on trial before a military commission, and the third attempt overall to put them on trial. Um, so, I'm curious. I mean, that's just one uh, example of um, the sort of long-term negative consequences of uh, of some post 9/11 decision making. And so, I, I don't know. I, I'm I'm not sure if I actually answered your question or if I just spun off on our tangent there. I definitely think you uh, addressed a lot of the question. I'm, I, I'm curious whether you believe in, in such thing as an ethical war, generally. So I'm not a moral philosopher. Um, I, 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 so I don't know. I don't know the answer to that question. Um, I, I'm not uh, equipped truly to, to answer that question. You know, I think that there are, you know, there's a difference between an eth. Well, yeah, I, I guess I'm not. I, I'm much more comfortable talking about the legalities of, sure. of war, um, <clears throat> the conduct of hostilities, and and decisions to use force than I am about the um, the morality of war as a general matter. Um, sure. I mean. I think it's interesting just because uh, law ultimately is the attempt to encode ethics. Like it is, it is starting with some ethical principle and then deriving the sort of specific code of conduct in different circumstances. And, you know, it seems that uh, different societies and different value systems have different starting points for ethics and therefore different laws as a result. Um, And, 
our particular uh, system of war code of conduct, our particular system of ethics is cultural, it's evolved, it's historical, it's very complicated, um, and it gives rise to this tremendous amount of uh, legal effort um, and intellectual effort to really figure out this problem because it is a really tremendous puzzle um, and maybe one that war a hundred years ago, there would not have been the effort to put this much energy behind it. So I, I, so I agree with a lot of what you said. I mean, it, like certainly, certainly the laws of war are the product of, I mean, the laws of war are, are the body of international law that deals with uh, the decision to use force in the first instance, that's the use ad bellum and um, the conduct of hostilities, you know, what people can, may, or cannot do, what armed forces can, may, or cannot do in the course of the war itself, the use in bellum. International law, you know, is supposed to be derived from the consensus view of the um, subjects of international law, which is to say states, right? Like, so it, it should in some sense reflect the views of, you know, all of the countries, the cultural backgrounds, the historical backgrounds, things like that. Um, that's aspirational, right? Like, it, it, I think it is not a controversial, uh, it, it's not controversial to point out that particularly in, in the laws of war, there's, um, there are degrees of Western chauvinism. Um, you know, the, where I would disagree with you is, is the idea that this is somehow different today or that the, the intellectual uh, effort today is, is more than it was a hundred years ago. Oh. Um, the project of, so, I mean, lots of law of war scholars will point to, you know, um, sort of nascent codes of conduct and, and hostilities, you know, thousands of years ago in different parts of the world and, and the, their commonalities and sort of say, you know, we've been regulating warfare forever. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And there is some truth to that. I mean, if, if mo the modern laws of war really evolved out of the, the you know, the 16th and 17th century. Um, and they've gone through um, different, you know, different, they've been influenced greatly by different intellectual currents, right? Like um, the enlightenment had a huge influence on it, on the laws of war before the enlightenment, um, you know, Christian just war philosophy and tradition had a huge influence on the laws of war. Then the, you know, 19th century um, uh, bent towards positivism and, um, and realism uh, it heavily influenced the laws of war. And, you know, you can, you, if you follow rules, like aspects of the conduct through, you know, several hundred years, you can watch as they sort of change and get molded by these different intellectual currents. But um, all that's to say is that people have been expending a lot of time, um, lawyers and philosophers and um, I guess lawyers and philosophers, military thinkers have spent a lot of time over the last, you know, 300 years in the West, the cultural West, thinking about the laws of war and how they apply and, and what you can and cannot do. Um, and it, you know, it's remarkable the extent to which um, in that period, the, um, the emphasis on humanity has grown um, over time, uh, 
and the emphasis on not just, you know, for a long time, the, the focus of the laws of war was on the actual participants, like the soldiers. Like, what can a soldier do? And how do you have to treat a soldier when he's wounded or sick or captured? Then in the course of the 20th century, the emphasis has shifted away from, you know, an emphasis, an emphasis that is um, not exclusive, but, uh, you know, a heavy emphasis on, you know, soldiers, members of armed forces, and uh, a greater emphasis on um, civilians, people who are not members of armed forces who are caught up in hostilities. Um, so I guess um, the, the sort of maybe two overarching ethical principles behind the modern um, laws of war, and this is just my view, uh, would be on the one hand, um, cabining the level of violence as between armed forces with the, the caveats, the twin caveats of one, wars are going to happen, and two, uh, a belief that brutal wars often end, like violent wars end quickly. Um, so that's one ethical principle. And the second ethical principle uh, that has animated the laws of war you know, more recently in the last say 100 years, 70 years, has been this focus on insulating the civilian population um, from the depredations of warfare. And I think that 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 impetus, that focus on civilians as opposed to armed forces has been largely a result of um, the the greater uh, impact that wars had on civilian populations going back to like the interwar period in the 1930s and the evolution of like total warfare, right? So like lots of what Geneva, like the 1949 Geneva Conventions reflect is the experience of um, civilians between, you know, 1930 and 1946. One other uh, a question that's related to I mean, we're, we're talking now about kind of a, a pluralistic understanding of uh, of different legal traditions and of different ethical traditions. Um, and I'm curious whether you, in the course of your work, I have obviously just within the context of the American legal system, you could be advocating and believing in the, uh, you could be advocating for the fair application of the ethical system that you are a part of. And that's, that's your job. You are, you're responsible for that. Do you think that uh, your work or our work as a culture uh, in defining these legal rules represents a best practice. Is it really like, is it emblematic of, of the ethical system that you think that you would, you would like go to? It, is it, in, is it like, um, is it like something that you like emphatically endorse? Or do you think that there are competing norms that you find more persuasive? So, so I, I think that I am um, too ignorant of competing norms to, um, to really make a comparative, um, uh, to, to make a comparison. Uh, the sort of stuff, if I did not believe deep in my bones, the sort of stuff that they teach you in grade school and civics class in you know, middle school in this country, I would not be doing the, the job that I'm doing. Um, I would not feel the, the, you know, um, the impetus, the passion for it that I do feel. Yeah. I think um, I think one of the, I mean, putting aside like the the policy consequences of um, post nine eleven decision making, like one of the the really deeply troubling things to me as somebody who who believes in this stuff, who really just believes in it, is that 
in, in building the, the architecture of the international legal system over the last 75 years or more, um, and, and really going back to the Declaration of Independence, um, you know, the United States has set out rhetorically standards of behavior. And, you know, it has often fallen short of those standards, but it has very frequently lived up to them. And over the course of our history, of American history, we have driven the world farther forward in protections uh, of, of human rights and, and the, um, the, the sort of valuing humanity in general, right? Like, like we have driven the world or, you know, we have led or driven or inspired the world to, to be better um, than it was. And since 9-11, we have, we have in many respects turned our back on that tradition. Right. And we've done that by, I mean, in the first instance, by uh, engaging in a program of torture, right, which is universally prohibited. And the United States has been a clear voice in opposition to torture in all its forms in any uh, in any circumstance uh, for decades. Right. I mean, we, we put out every year a, a compendium of reports assessing each country's behavior. And, and, and included in that is, have you tortured people and do you do it as a matter of policy? Um, but, but not only did we decide to torture people, we, had, we decided to do it using a, a like painful and hyper-legalistic interpretation of, of our own principles to not, I mean, explicitly to avoid the law, right? With the explicit purpose of legal avoidance, international or domestic. And, and, and we built Guantanamo, the detention facility at Guantanamo. Time and again, since 9-11, we have failed to hold ourselves accountable. And, and we, are, um, we are setting the worst possible example um, for the rest of the world in, in that. Like we, we're just, we're not really not doing our job to advance, um, to advance human rights and international humanitarian law when we fail to hold ourselves accountable and when we, uh, we try to avoid the law. And so I got a question then on your work that you do now, right? You're providing legal defense for detainees in Guantanamo. And just one, but yeah, there's one. And as you've said uh, before in earlier conversations, this is sort of thankless work, right? That you do because you care about. Now that you have the Department of Defense, I mean, and for your career as a legal professional in the government, um, do you think doing this would have has any implications for, say, your next position, for your next career move? Or, you know, I mean, do people in the government then view you as, why are you, you know, wholeheartedly providing such a good defense for this clearly vilified, um, you know, individual. Does it make you a pariah at all in, in, within your profession? Um, that's a good question. I, I really don't know the answer to that. Um, I hope not. <laughs> I mean, I, I hope not as well. Um, um, yeah, I, I don't know. I, and I honestly don't know. I don't know whether I will uh, be able to answer that. And, um, truly until 
uh, you know, I try to change jobs and, and, um, and I, you know, see, I see how I'm perceived. Uh, I, I suspect that it hasn't, um, but that may be more hope than evidence-based. Um, I will say this before I took the job, I, you know, I thought long and hard about taking the job and about what it would mean to, uh, to say that my job is to, um, zealously defend, uh, a man who's accused of perpetrating, uh, or participating in in the perpetration of 9/11 of the you know the the most horrific terrorist attack um, in in at least American history and and arguably world history, um, and I uh, you know I was I I was concerned by that I was concerned about the professional consequences of of that I was concerned about the personal consequences of that um, ultimately I decided that I would take the job because I. I had been critic, critical of the military commission system, um, and I, you know, I firmly believe in the rule of law. That's you know one of those civics things that is just in my bones, and uh, and it seemed to me that this was um, one of those times in life where somebody was asking me to put my money where my mouth is and uh, and actually do something about something I criticized, um, and if I didn't accept that challenge, I would, you know, I would be uh, at the very least forestalled from criticizing the system going forward. Um, uh, and, and perhaps at worst, a coward. Um, and then having decided to take the job, I, I have been extremely impressed by the reaction that lay people, non-lawyers have to, uh, to that decision. It is in my in my experience up to this point, I would say that uh, lay Americans are more enthusiastic and more they exhibit a a sort of more fulsome appreciation for the idea that everyone deserves a zealous defense than even members of my own profession um, who you know you know as professionals and as technicians they you know express caution and and you know they see you know, sort of the, the pluses and minuses of it. Whereas, you know, lay people, um, I think just see the, the values that it represents and, and, and what it means that even the people that we abhor, um, get their day in court or at least get lawyers who are trying to get them their day in court. I, I'll go ahead, Jay. I was going to say, could you describe a bit, you've mentioned like what, what the actual work was like going down to Guantanamo, flying on this plane by yourself, and the heavy cost involved in that, and just the ridiculousness I feel of the whole, you know, system. But uh, yeah, I mean, that's my view. But could you just explain what it's like on a day-to-day basis? Sure. So, um, so I think you're probably thinking of the um, the plane that we took in my old job. Uh, uh, which was the the uh, the government's small private jet that we would take down for a trip to Gitmo and back, yeah, for like a day trip to you know sometimes a company um, representatives of foreign governments to interview uh, detainees who um, uh, might be offered the opportunity to be resettled in a third country, mm-hmm. um, and. Uh, and yeah, I mean that's those were not cheap flights. Um, the 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 cost of the whole thing is is um, 
you know, outrageous. It costs uh, something on the order. I think um, Carol Rosenberg in the New York Times reported about um, nine months ago, eight months ago, that the the per detainee cost of uh, the detention facility um, is is now about thirteen million dollars per detainee per year. Um, as a just a point of comparison, um, the cost of de- of imprisoning um, somebody who's been convicted of you know say terrorism and is being detained at or incarcerated I should say at um, the supermax facility in Florence, Colorado, you know the most secure prison on the planet is like somewhere between seventy five and eighty thousand dollars per year. Um, so we're talking about you know I guess three orders of magnitude. Um, uh, you know, there's something like 2,000 soldiers and civilians guarding 40 guys at Guantanamo. Um, you know, five of those guys have been approved for transfer, and they've been approved for transfer for years. Um, the the whole thing is, you know, ridiculous. And I mean, and it has to be in in some sense because, like, you know, the whole point was to to detain people outside of the law and you had to find a place that was going to be inaccessible to lawyers. And if it's inaccessible to lawyers, it's probably inaccessible to everything else. Right. So they picked Naval station Guantanamo Bay, which is a 45 square mile piece of territory on the Southwest, excuse me, Southeast edge of Cuba, right. It straddles Guantanamo Bay. And, you know, there, there's no commerce with Cuba. Like everything has to be barged in or flown in. Uh, so all the food, all the, you know, clothing, all the equipment, all of the materials to build stuff has to, you know, be flown or barged in o- over the course of time. You know, no one wanted to believe that this was going to go on for 17 years. So everything was built in sort of, you know, in a temporary fashion, like an, an expeditionary fashion, but the persistent refusal to recognize that this was going to be around for a long time means that there's just been this slouching towards permanence as people like slap together solutions that become increasingly permanent like, but never permanent enough to like withstand hurricanes and, you know, the tropics, right? Like it's hot and sunny and windy and there's salt and that erodes you know, sheet metal, uh, um, and rust it out. And, uh, when you, Just you know, hire, it's a oh yeah, it's, it's, it's ridiculous. And, and on top of that, right. They're like, you know, basically a dozen people who are on trial or going through some process trial related process at Guantanamo, right. Out of the 40 guys. Who are the only people involved in the trial who live at Guantanamo are the defendants. I live in Washington, D.C. Most of the other lawyers live in D.C. or, you know, you know the D.C. metropolitan area. Um, the judge doesn't live at Guantanamo. Uh, you know, the prosecutors live primarily in D.C., right? All of, you know, the media does not live at Guantanamo. All of these folks, every time we have a hearing, all of these people, the, the judge, his staff, the prosecutors, their staff, the defense attorneys, our staff, uh, the the handful of media who go down to witness the hearings and report on it, the victim family members, there there's something between like 10 and 20 victim family members who come on the plane for each hearing, 
different members. There's, I think, a lottery system. Uh, and then a handful of non-governmental observers. We all get together at Andrews Air Force Base on, you know, you know, at like six or seven o'clock in the morning on a Saturday, hang around Andrews for like three hours, get on a plane, uh, usually like a 757, and we all fly down to Guantanamo. And we all get off the plane, and the plane, the, the airport is on the other side of the bay, so we all truck down to, to the dock, and we get on the, the ferry, and the ferry takes us across the first, and we get to work. And, um, you know, if everything goes, goes right, we might have five days of court and come back the following Saturday or have 10 days of court and come back two Saturdays later. But very often everything does not go right. And, you know, every now and again, we'll all fly down there and something will happen uh, and nothing, and we won't have court or we'll only have a day of court. And, you know, all this, you know, we're all just stuck there for, you know, a week. Um, it's, it, I mean, it's insane. And, and like there there, there's a constant stream of single points of failure. Uh, I mean, everything from the 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 fact that there are no other judges on on the island. So if a judge gets sick, which happened a little over a year ago, Judge Perella, who was our second judge in the 9/11 Commission, uh, we're on our third now, and he's just announced his retirement. So we'll be on our fourth sometime later this year. Um, uh, our second judge, he had a detached retina. Uh, and he had to be uh, medevaced uh, off Guantanamo. Um, and that took 18 hours to get him off Guantanamo, which, I mean, is crazy. Um, and it's, uh, uh, and we, we just sat there for the next uh, three and a half days after he had to cancel court, um, or four and a half days, and, and waited to get on the plane. And they could have brought another plane to pick us up, right? except that the, the flight is contracted out and the, the contracting is, you know, probably to the lowest bidder within some parameters. And it turned out that the contractor didn't have another plane available. Uh, and so, or they had another plane and it broke. There was some excuse at any rate, the, there was no way to get us off Island any earlier. So there was just, there are, you know, 200, 150, 200 people who don't normally stay at Guantanamo who only come down there to do this one very particular thing who were stuck there not being able to do the particular thing. Um, what, and, you know, then, in times like that, can you do your work, other work, or are you just twiddling thumbs? Yeah, I mean, you, yes, uh, so, some of it. I mean, a lot of our work is investigations, which means going out talking to people, and um, you can't do that if you can't leave Guantanamo. Um, but you can do other work. Like, you know, a lot of my work is, is research and writing, and, um, and I can do that anywhere where there's you know, a stable internet connection. Um, you know, that's not always the case at Guantanamo. Yeah. Um, and, That'll you know, it, it, yeah. Uh, and it creates, you know, creates opportunities to meet with our client, which is something that we can only do at Guantanamo. Like we can't talk to our client unless we're on an island, um, which right now, because of COVID-19 and the, and a variety of different orders that make it impossible to see it means that we can't talk to our client. Yeah, so what's the impact of that right now? Like what's happening on the base? Can they social distance and do all that with the prisoners? Or? So, it's, um, so it's a good question. Um, it's important to remember that the, so the detention facility, so there's Naval Station Guantanamo Bay, which is like a sleepy Naval Station still serving as a Naval Station. And it you know, services like Coast Guard cutters that come in periodically. Mm -hmm. and, and there's a 
you know, that, that is a naval base doing Navy work. And then um, Joint Task Force Guantanamo, which is responsible for, you know, the operation of the, the commissions at Guantanamo and the detention facility is what they call a tenant command. And it's kind of like a, uh, having a subtenant. And they've got this little corner of the base um, and um, it's, it's sort of uh, a world unto itself. Um, and it's, you know, subject to different like rules and, you know, procedures about going over there and, and interacting with people who work on that, that part of the base and, and like seeing my client or other people who are in detention. Um, and there are, are there, the joint task force has put in place rules about, um, uh, limiting access to the guys who are detained to try to prevent, um, the, um, the spread of COVID-19 into the detention facility. Yeah, um, actually, Ben, so I, I had one interesting thing I wanted to touch on. We're nearing about an hour or so. I don't know how much more time you have, but um, I want to ask like what maybe listeners or us lay people probably don't know much about is what is the mind of this defendant or the other defendants that you've come across with? Are they just normal people who took a bad turn and ended up, you know, supporting 9-11? Or do they really have some deranged worldviews that, uh, you know, and, them to be? I'm curious, perhaps, how has that changed in the 20 years that they've been in detention? Yeah. Yeah. So uh, let, me, let me not talk about um, the folks I don't represent. Um, okay. I, I, it, with, with the exception of this, um, when I was doing my previous job of uh, negotiating detainee transfers, people would sometimes remark, well, this guy's been detained for, you know, 14 or 15 years. He's never been charged with a crime. He's never been put on trial. He must be really angry at the United States. Um, and I think that's a, like a, a totally reasonable conclusion to come to in the abstract, but it, in my experience, it was totally uh, incorrect. Um, most of those guys, the guys who had been approved for transfer and who I interacted with, um, they were just tired and they wanted to go home. Um, a lot of these guys uh, were picked up in their early 20s. Um, you know, they, and, you know, they were looking back at life from the perspective of like a, somebody in their mid to late 30s. Um, and the, you know, they, they, they missed all of their youth, uh, you know, they, and, and they missed the window and time in, in their culture where they were supposed to get married and start families and start caring for their parents. And, um, and they, they really just wanted to go do that for like lots of reasons. Um, um, so they, you know, they weren't, they weren't angry. They were. Um, they were very, they were very often very broken, um, as I mean, I think happens to anybody who's been incarcerated or detained for a prolonged period of time. Um, but they really just wanted to get on, the, on with their lives. And many of them have. And uh, unfortunately, some of them have, um, have struggled uh, and failed to do so that um, they have, you know, they've just not been able to get the help they need, um, the support they need, or um, or reconcile themselves to life outside of Guantanamo. And that's not to say that everybody who, um, well, it, it, 
I don't, I don't mean to paint like a rosier picture than is deserving of, of any of these folks. Some of these folks are not good people. Um, some of them were honestly got innocent and, and then there was everything in between. Um, with respect to my client, um, he is, uh, he's suffering. Um, he was tortured. Uh, he, he was tortured for three and a half years by the CIA. He was, um, you know, he was held incommunicado for that entire period. You know, the only people he interacted with, with were the, the guards um, who detained him and the, the people responsible for authoring his torture. Uh, he was put in stress positions. The reality of what happened, Walling is having somebody wrap a, uh, a coiled towel around your neck and uh, throw your head into a wall repeatedly. Um, you know, uh, Dr. James Mitchell, who testified at Guantanamo, one of the architects of the, or the um, I, I think so. But the other thing he said, it, it, when, when some of the public... Uh, the publicly available materials about what was actually done to my client were described to him. Um, Mitchell was actually extremely critical of what happened to my client and described him as being used like a test dummy, um, particularly with the Wally. And, you know, we now know that my client has suffered at least one and probably several uh, moderate uh, TBIs, several mild TBIs. He, um, you know, he was sleep deprived for literally years, um, you know, kept for a time in, in a cold, dark place. And then for a much longer time in a very bright place, he was subjected to forced nudity. Um, uh, he was hooded. He was threatened. Um, you know, the, the net effect of this has been, you know, TBI, post-traumatic stress disorder, post-concussion syndrome, um, prolonged, um, uh, prolonged and, and, um, you know, extreme sleep disruption, disruption. Um, he, you know, he's in the midst of, um, a long and very dramatic cognitive decline that, I mean, um, that among other things, significantly impacts his ability to participate in his own defense and, um, and assist us as his attorneys in, uh, you know, piecing together his story and investigating what happened to him and, uh, and putting on a defense. That, and that is. I'm, I'm scared to uncover what the current, what is happening under the current administration, um, whenever that happens. Um, I, I wanted to, uh, get we're, we're about a time here and we'll, we'll, we can wrap up in just a minute, but uh, there was something I kind of wanted to follow up on from our line of, uh, line of discussion earlier, which was your kind of <clears throat> your feelings about like us having the United us being the United States kind of betrayed our mission to some degree. And that like the beginning of that decline was nine 11. Um, and the sense that prior to that period that, we were the good guys that we were advocating for some improvement uh, and that we were advocating for people and for humanity. Um, and I think I retreat to that view as well. I think that I, I, I think I find, I, but one of the things that makes me skeptical of the view is that I, I find solace in that view. And yeah. I wonder if I am 
potentially reading into a narrative that was served to me about mm -hmm. a United States history. Because if you read into any particular period of the United States history, um, the way that it treated basically uh, people that could not advocate for themselves, people that did not have access to journalists, um, it's always been pretty brutal. Yeah. Like we yeah. go back to the, the Indian Wars, we go back, of course, to the, 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 the legacy of slavery. We like the, the United States in the Philippines, um, like whenever there has been sort of the, the, the watchful eye of, of the press, things get dressed up a lot more and a lot more legal effort and, and, and perhaps moral effort is applied. But I wonder, why do you have such faith in that narrative? So I, um, what concerns me about um, a lot of the decision-making in the wake of 9-11 has been not just the failure of the United States to live up to its promise, but its refusal to, to, its refusal to attempt to do so and then to turn around and claim that it was at the same time, right? Like to, to angrily, you know, so, to angrily, um, uh, I, I got, I'm sorry, I'm tired. I can't think of a good yeah, analogy for this, but, like, but it's almost like the, the rejection of our own dream. Yeah. Like Self-righteous rejection of our own, own yes. documents. Right. Yeah. Um, yeah. Uh, yeah, and and it was, and he, he, I I would very much like to lay this at the feet of you know Dick Cheney or George W. Bush or John Yu or uh, Jay Bybee, all of whom bear responsibility for this in some way, but they are not alone here, right? Um, you know the the Obama administration, President Obama had a choice to make about accountability and he chose famously to look forward, not backwards. And I think that, that that was a huge mistake. It was a huge mistake within the context of national security making. It was a huge mistake within the context of, of torture and, you know, specifically. But I think it's also, it, history will bear out that it was a huge mistake um, in, in a much more far reaching way it, that like the, the, the failure, our failure to hold ourselves accountable for, um, for violating the law and, and for brutalizing people and, and seeking to avoid the law while doing so, um, I, I think has contributed to a, a, um, uh, it contributed to a culture where, um, where, you know, you know, we have a president today who um, pardons war criminals, and you know, I mean, we're back to might might makes right, and we're we're almost like as if it's like a moral regression, and it's like a self righteous yeah. moral regression. Um, yeah. Yes, I think that's well put. Yeah. You put um, that much better than I did. <laughs> All deriving from you. Um, we. Uh, I think we, we're probably at time now. Um, and we like to wrap up with, uh, it doesn't have to be lighter note, but it often can be, um, with it, which is just, oh, there was my terrible alarm sound. <laughs> um, we, like to, we like to wrap up with uh, um, basically a recommendation 
to anyone that might be listening of something that you have read, read, watched, or encountered. Um, it can be pertinent to the, today's conversation, or it could just be on something that's on your mind. Um, but basically something that has sort of like come to the surface for you that's like made you, uh, given, made you pause to think. And if you want, I can start so I can give you some time. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Lately, I've been listening to this, this um, audio book from uh, Yuval Nahari, his latest book called uh, 21 Questions for the 21st Century. Or I don't know if it's questions, but it's 21 something for the 21st century. And he's basically putting forward this view that, uh, you know, the, the story that we were told to the 20th century is not really applicable anymore going forward. And we are kind of seeing that. We thought that, you know, democracy, these, these stories of like liberalism, these are all linear progressions. And they're actually not, they're all chaotic systems. So one little change today, you cannot predict what it's gonna be like, even a few days, a few months, a few years from now. And instead of sort of like deluding ourselves into you know, these ideals and this is what we should live for, we should just rather get ready for a chaotic system as it is. <laughs> and how can we prepare as a society to tackle things? Um, you know, and his book is sort of prescient. It came out a few months ago and here we are dealing with this you know, massive black swan event that is changing every path probably going forward from here. So really interesting. I haven't finished it yet. It makes you de uh, think deeply. It's kind of uh, depressing in some ways because he kind of paints how you really can't predict anything at all when you're looking at global systems. And, um, but it gives some hope. I think towards the end of the book, he might, he might end on hope. So I'm waiting to, to get to that. But yeah, that's what I've been listening to lately. Brian? Sure, I'll go next. So um, I'm going to recommend that listeners look up something called Conway's Game of Life. Um, so Conway, John Conway was a mathematician um, who just passed away, I think actually related to COVID. Um, and he was a, a extremely, he was well known for being a, a prolific mathematician as well as a really great humorist. So he often combined mathematics with humor and he was often, he was one known for very sort of like non sequitur sort of observations about life and, and incorporating uh, a lot of, a lot of humor into his, um, into his, his teachings. Um, and the game of life is a mathematical game that um, he invented or he described um, and you can go look it up, but basically it was a, it's a randomly, uh, it's a system that starts in a random state and then it evolves from that random state in a deterministic way. Um, and it produces all sorts of interesting little phenomena that happen uh, that are somewhat uh, emblematic of like population sort of like colonizing little parts of this uh, like two dimensional grid. Um, but it's, it's a fascinating thing. It's just a little bit of a puzzle. It's a little bit of an insight into um, the era of that sort of branch of mathematics. He worked a lot with von Neumann and, and it might lead you down a wiki, Wikipedia rabbit hole, which is worth crawling down. So, uh, I think I'm going to look up both of those. Uh, Jay, you have to send me that title. Sure. Uh, yeah. mm -hmm. um, let's see. I know it's pretty so we probably have to give our guests like advance notice. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> um, well, so I, I don't know if I have anything 
So, well, I guess what I've been reading recently, or at least what's on my nightstand, is William Dalrymple's Anarchy, um, which is the history of the East India Company, and I'm about halfway through it. Um, I, um, I've made the mistake of reading it at night, so I am not getting as much out of it as I probably should. Like, it, it really deserves to be, like, read in daylight hours with a pen in hand, um, mm-hmm to mark it up, but it's excellent and it's fascinating. Um, and it has, um, uh, uh, really sort of, uh, changed my conception of, um, of the East India company as an entity and how it interacted with the subcontinent. Um, uh, so it's great. I'm also, if I can have a second one, I'm also in the midst of reading Thomas Heghammer's The Caravan, which is a, um, uh, sort of a, a bio, basically, of Abdullah Azam, who um, who people should know, and many people don't, unless they work in counterterrorism. But Abdullah Azam was a uh, Palestinian uh, Palestinian Jordanian preacher who um, who really organized the transnational jihad that resulted in the Afghan Arabs and um and gave birth to um some parts of the theology have um you know spun wildly out of control and manifested into al-qaeda and then isis and other entities but also like the physical infrastructure that those entities in some cases co-opted in other cases um tried to replicate uh when he started what was called maktab al-qadamat or the services bureau um, but the the bio so far is incredibly deeply researched and uh, just super informative. What's the name of the book again? The Caravan, Abdullah Caravan. Azam, and the Rise of Global Jihad. Very interesting. This has been a fascinating conversation. I really appreciate you uh, going all over the place with us today. Um, I, I hope we get to talk again sometime in the future. Yeah. Oh, really fascinating. Thank you, Ben. Well, thank you guys very much for having me. This was a, a real pleasure for me, and I'm I'm sorry I don't give podcast friendly sound bites. <laughs> That's fine. <laughs> I don't think we do either. <laughs> <laughs>